Welcome to Seers, Beers, Knowers, and Doers, a podcast about intuition. Do you know what that is? Intuition to me is that inner sense or knowing that something is true, and yet I have no proof. But there's so many definitions, and there's so many ways it can come. I'm looking to bring together and share with you some amazing guests who have some amazing life stories and also some insights into how intuition can come. And I'm looking to gather those crows in the trees. I hope you're one of them. I hope that this podcast inspires you to be more connected to your intuition. And I hope that by doing that, we make the world a better place. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. Before we get started today, I would love to share some tools with you to help with stress and feeling overwhelmed, especially for the energetically sensitive person. Feel free to go to my store on my website at www.healingvitality.ca. Thanks so much for coming on this journey with me. Today, my guest is Crystal LeBlanc. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you for having me. We've known each other seven or eight years. At least. Kind of neat. We cross paths. In a lot of different ways. Yeah. yeah. I find that really... I think that's something that's really neat about Moncton, right? Like, just small communities, you know, and you cross paths with people. You might not see them for a couple of years, and yeah. you never really know when they're going to come back. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. So, tell us about yourself and about this other guest that's arrived in my Yeah. So, <laughs> Marielle is here with me. She's our, our courthouse dog uh, in New Brunswick, so she's the only dog providing support for kids when they have to testify... Um, as well as, you know, any adult that, that would need that extra support. But I'll start with me maybe a little bit. Because mm-hmm. then I have a bad habit of being like those moms that only talk about their kids, even though, like, I don't have kids. So I'm still an identity, even though everybody gets more excited about the dog than me these days. But Absolutely. Um, but you have a lot on the go. So. I do. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I was born and raised in, in Moncton. Um, went away a little bit for school. But, you know, just uh, always, always like the Moncton community. So... Wanted to kind of build my life here and work here. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an only child. I went to Eth Cavell, which, you know, I'm so proud to have been from there. And my Moncton High Purple Knight, but of course the old school. Yes. It makes me sad a little bit that it's not there anymore just because the building had a lot of history and culture Absolutely. to it. My grandfather was the first graduating class of Moncton High. Really? So, uh, yeah, in the original building. So I always liked that connection, you know? So, it's, like, it makes me sad that it's not there anymore. But. No. And it to me, it was so Hogwarts, like... Yeah. Hogwarts, you went to school but... in some kind of fortress. How is yes. that not really cool, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> then, um, originally, I, I was interested in medicine, but I wasn't quite sure in, in what capacity, but I was kind of headed down that way, and... I started with my Bachelor of Science at Mount A in Sackville, which seems so far, which is funny to me. Like, I'm someone, I got my license really late in life. And so I remember being 18 and thinking Sackville was, like, really far away. I know it doesn't make sense because now, like, we can do it in 20-some minutes, but it just felt like a, another world. Yeah. Probably the, the whole campus life seemed like a, another world. Mm-hmm. And so I started that way, and... I was struggling my first year. It's, you know, I, I don't think we do the best job prepping people when they graduate for how hard it is. And especially nope. when you're considered, you know, a top student in high school. Absolutely. And then you go through the, what do you mean I'm on academic probation? How did this happen? And what's going on? And so I kind of... Nobody had, taught me how yeah, to study. Like, what, what is, the hell is yeah, yeah. What, what dorm life and setting balance. Mm. And so I think... It, I did the same it, thing. Yeah. It was just like a hard mm. year to just 
figure yourself out, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's a shame that there's such a cost to figuring yourself out in terms of tuition and yeah and having to change programs and I worked uh, for a summer that my first year no my second year at the nursing home in Sackville and I guess I started to realize that it wasn't necessarily medicine that I enjoyed like the the anatomy side of things and the chemistry like that stuff was almost painful and I thought it shouldn't be this hard but it was the the human component and interacting with people that I knew I loved so I think I had to just have a bigger look at what what is that if it's not medicine I wanted to help people I wanted to be there I wanted you know mm-hmm. and then I started looking at well gee all my psychology classes were kind of a breeze and I was just loving everything about the human mind mm-hmm. so luckily early on enough I kind of made that switch um and then you know finished my psychology degree and and uh, followed a really interesting professor who was actually at Crandall um it was Atlanta Baptist University back then so right. I went there and had a great experience there. I wanted to do my master's. Couldn't figure out really was I doing a master's in psychology um, and trying to trying to kind of sort that out. I really enjoyed research. Um, I always had an interest in criminology kind of early on, and so I ended up doing a master's in applied health services research um, at. Memorial University, it's called a master's in medicine, so it depends what school you go to. Okay. Um, and it was my first experience with this kind of virtual learning. It was a program where they took two seats per university, um, so it was classes of eight. And that's when I really had an opportunity to, you know, do more internships and really have a look at where my interests were. And that's when I started to find an interest in, in family violence. Um, it was a professor. Combination of the yeah. psychology, the criminology, the human interest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it was this interesting cross section. And because mm-hmm. I had worked at Drew Nursing Home um, as a student back then, and I was really close with my grandparents. I lived around the corner from my parents' house. And, and I basically, it was a second home. And, and my husband and I, we, we lived with them right up until the end of their lives and, and started doing a bit more care for them. I just, I don't know. I had this weird... Maybe it's intuition. I had this weird <laughs> feeling like I was supposed to care about or be interested in, in an older population and seniors. And it was it would be this weird thing where I'd go in grocery stores and like older people would kind of gravitate towards me like I was some kind of weird sponge. It's just bizarre. Yeah. And so I decided to kind of look at the intersectionality of, of older women and what is their experience within family violence. Mm. And it was something that wasn't researched and it was really hard to find any any empirical data on on older women there's a lot more now since i've graduated but kind of dedicated i guess my academic life to older women and, and intimate partner violence and in doing that research it then gave me a passion and a desire to do that for my life outside of the the academic world okay yeah so yeah it kind of just brought me to where i am today yeah cool yeah well and it I, I don't imagine there's much empirical data because that's behind closed doors and people don't talk about that sort of thing. So was there a difficulty getting your participants to open up even a bit? Yeah, like it was hard to even do a thorough like literature review. Mm. So for older women, I think a lot of the issues are that there was this big assumption that if you were over 55 or over 60 and you were being abused by your partner, that would be in the field of elder abuse. And if you were younger, it would be in the traditional intimate partner violence, family violence area of research. So there was this interesting size of population of women who were over 50 and even up to 80 plus 
who were being abused by their partners, but it didn't fit elder abuse because there was no, there was no abuse of, of, of in a sense that she was under his care or right. like the typical right. elder abuse or, stuff. Or financial abuse. Yeah. Or, it was typical this is textbook my family violence. Yeah. yeah. This is my husband or, or reverse possibly like yeah. this is my wife beating the beating me up or, yeah or and you know the power and control like everything yeah. else was the same yeah but yet they weren't given the respect that they deserved mm. in research and because of that they weren't given the respect Seven. they deserved in services, in services because there was no data to really even say that they existed right wow yeah so it became a, a really interesting area to explore and to and to develop some some real literature on mm-hmm. um and so that's what we did i did my master's thesis on um older women and intimate partner violence and whether or not the emergency shelter services in the atlantic provinces were meeting their needs so first were women going and right. second did they fit there or did they feel like a fish out of water there right. so that's that's what i did interesting yeah wow. so okay. i it's kind of weird because mm-hmm. i i don't think it's very common that when you stay in sometimes an academic world for a really long time, so I had eight years by the time I was done, you don't always get to take that and actually live it out, right? right. You you do something sometimes completely opposite, or you just don't touch that part of your life again. Mm-hmm. And like, in every way, I'm still very it much... Maps. Yeah, I'm yeah. still rooted in that original stuff. So what do you do now? I run the Crisis Center, the Bojigil Crisis Center, um, yeah. and we recently just uh, went through a major change and, and opened a uh, $3 million building um, to accommodate older women, like to build apartments that, you know. Talk about seeing the future. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it's just, it's just, I don't, I don't even want to explain it. It's really hard work, but like some days I feel spoiled that I got to take that data and do something with it. Mm-hmm. Like not, like I know so many people that go to graduate school and sometimes they pursue their PhD, sometimes they don't. And then they work in a job that they can't, really they're not respected in terms of their salary because of the fact that they have a master's degree like they just no one can afford them right and and quite frankly i'm not paid my master's degree either but that's a choice that i made that i don't regret doing so um but yeah i just i find you moved the needle yeah and you get to do some some really cool stuff that you could you know take what you learned you know almost 10 years ago now in 2010 i think i finished um and got Mm -hmm. to kind of take that dusty thesis that's sitting in Ottawa in the National Archives and actually say, wait a minute, this is what we found. So, you know, and what's cool is there's still people that took our pe- our work and my, my thesis professor and, you know, a group of people that have continued that work, you know, and what does this look like for rural women? What's it look like for older immigrant women? So it's nice to see that awesome. evolve. And there's yeah. across the country and around the globe now, there's a bit more research on it. There's still the stereotypical belief that if you're over 50 and you're abused, oh, that's elder abuse. We're not going to deal with that. Um, That's in a different pot. And I think that'll take a forever dialogue change all the time, right? right? If people aren't educated, they're just going to make assumptions. Right. Um, And somehow 50 is (laughs) elder. I know. Like, it's just... And again, yeah, they just... I mean, not that that even the whole statement is wrong, but I think of, of... 50 as I mean definitely with the boomers in the world aging you know the 60s the old 40 and Mm -hmm. right like so 
so the fact that there's still that line in the sand in that segment of society and and the services provided to that segment of society is is oh it's it's really limited like if you're a 67 year old woman Mm -hmm. and you were sexually assaulted um i think that there would be some first responders whether that's a 911 caller whether that's police whether that's medics who would have a hard time that to understand that someone that age would be I hate to say it, but we're going to say it, sexy enough to be raped. Right. So there's a lot of just ongoing dialogue and education that, that needs to be had. Because then if an older... it's so much about power yeah. and not about yeah. sex. It's so much about power. It is. It's power and control whether you're 22 or 82. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of women, when they are sexually assaulted in their seniors, they just they feel like this this service probably isn't for me. Because I'm not in my 20s. I wasn't at a bar. I wasn't at a party. This was my husband, maybe. Or this, you know? So I think that they just don't... Oh, they were mugged and it went to a crazy place. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's that continued misunderstanding there. Mm -hmm. And not that I can clear it all up, but I'd like to to continue trying. Right? Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Very, very cool. interesting. I mean, there had to have been some... uh, well, the inspiration happened when you were a kid. It really did. And I think, like, being in, in a nursing home facility when you're young and working, you develop an appreciation for um, where you're going to be yourself one day and the mm-hmm. treatment. And, and, you know, like, I'm not saying that facilities don't... They're not. They're trying to do the best that they can. But after a while, you just had this feeling of, like, this is a human being. Like, this is somebody's parents or somebody's Mm -hmm. children and they deserve this extra care and attention right like so Mm -hmm. if if we if the person had the time I'm sure they would love to do their nails and the person's hair and you know and and sometimes the time constraints wouldn't allow for it Mm -hmm. so I think I would I don't know it break my heart a little bit and then I would say like okay well there's definitely some issues with how we view like older populations Mm -hmm. and we're in a baby boom generation where it's in rural New Brunswick particularly where this is going to be the majority of who's who's here. Exactly. So it just, yeah. yeah. So I think my love of my, my own grandparents and seeing them age and, and working, you know, in a facility and doing my internships at hospitals, you know, and, and I was in cardiology and burning plastics and just seeing, like, an older population. I don't know. I just, whether they gravitate towards me, I gravitate towards them. I'm not sure, like, what came first. Mm-hmm. But I think there was always that desire to, to better understand. Just, and support. Yeah. Yeah. And shine a light on the fact that these are our elders. Yeah. (laughs) And we're all going to be there. So then we have this intuitive leap, I believe, to Muriel. Tell us a little bit about that. Because running a charity is is something that's really hard. A lot of of responsibility, a lot of pressure. And you always need to be thinking a step ahead or you feel like you're going to be behind or the charity is going to fall or it's... I'm not saying... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And I think... Our brains are, are trying to focus on what the what the big issue is of the day, but we have a part of our, our brains like that's a pie, and there's always a piece of it that is thinking three, five, seven, ten years down the road for your your organization, but also for the clients. So like what are we what are trends that we're seeing and what are things that and I always kind of felt like a lot of our victims, you know, like we weren't involved. Maybe that's why we felt that way. We weren't involved directly, like, you know, as victims go to court it wasn't something that we would have time to go and sit and support and it wasn't really our job either government offers you know victim services and things and and I don't know we just started looking at 
what's out there for victim support and testimonial aids and 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 what is that what does that program look like and uh, a while ago I had seen a courthouse dog um, in Delta BC who had, was the first Canadian dog to support uh, a child as they, they had to take the, the witness stand. I'm from Delta. No. <laughs> well, I tell you, they, um, so they've done cool. some amazing, laughed, they, did, they did some amazing stuff with, with that first dog. His name was Caber. He just retired not long ago and he awesome. was handled by Kim Gramlich. And Kim and I have kind of similar personalities where I feel like she'd probably walk through a wall for her clients. So she worked at victim services at Delta police. Very cool. So I started doing some research with, you know, the difference between therapy dogs, accredited facility dogs, like what were we getting into and what would that look like? And, Mm -hmm. and as we started looking at that, the program of justice facility dogs started to really boom in Canada. And I started to kind of say, okay, well, where, where is this rooted in? You know, who came up with it? What are the standards and the accreditation process? Because this type of program can also go really wrong. You know, the people that just want to bring Fluffy into the courtroom because their dog is the best dog ever. Like, you have to be really careful and you have to preserve justice, right? So I started digging around and I found the Courthouse Dog Foundation. And this is two ladies that, I mean, they're, they're just these ladies. I wish that I wish they lived closer. I wish I could just spend more time with them. Like I just, it sounds weird because I've only had a chance to be with them a couple of times, but I, I miss them terribly. Like I, I don't, maybe it's our personalities that kind of came Kin- together. Kindred. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I think I have an old soul. So I think I just. When you find those people that yeah. used to be in your tribe, it's like, hello. Yeah. And I'm I just, home here. I loved what they were trying to do. And mm-hmm. I love that it was for no other reason than the fact that they wanted to make that court process better for vulnerable victims and children. So one of the ladies was a crown prosecutor, retired out of Seattle. Prosecutor. Yes. And she had a a child who had uh, special needs. And her child had a service dog. And one day, I believe the story was that the personal support worker was sick and couldn't couldn't go to the house. Well, she was called to be in court. And she couldn't cancel it. So she brought her child uh, to the courtroom that day. He's, he's wheelchair bound. And the service dog. And she said that she had this weird, overwhelming feeling that the whole room changed. The vibe for both victims, the accused, even court personnel. Like, just having the dog there, the, it was palpable, she said. And she had vowed that when she was no longer crown prosecutor and was retired that she wanted to create a type of program where accredited facility so legitimate fully trained service dogs would um be a testimonial aid um in in the court system and so she partnered with uh, uh celeste walson and so ellen and celeste created this courthouse dog foundation they've been doing it for years they haven't paid themselves a dime they just <laughs> they travel all over the world they visited just every corner of the world and try and find uh, charities that or agencies that want to take on this program. And they they help you with the buy-in in your community. And they you can call them at any time if you're having an issue and say, what do I do with this? Or a defense <laughs> lawyer is going to have a problem. <laughs> what is this, Muriel? <laughs> do you hear something? So if a defense attorney, you know, 
might have a problem with it and you're, you know, we're worried about something. So the mm-hmm. actual application of her in court, mm-hmm. well, who better than to call the crown prosecutor in the States exactly. and say, did you have this before? Or do you, do you know another agency I can call who's handled a dog in this context? Right. So, so it's just a network. Of yeah. Things. And I, I don't think they realized how big it was going to be, you know? And lately they've been talking a lot about like, what's the plan for when they no longer are able to do this work? Like what is their mm-hmm. exit strategy? Because there's nobody salaried, so there's no executive director. I, I panic a bit, like, thinking about it. Again, my problems with control. Because I'm like, well, what's going to happen if they don't find somebody? And can they find people as devout and as, mm-hmm. as excited and passionate as these two, right? Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. you know, travel the world and, 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 and start these programs. And mm-hmm. so the more I looked into it, the more I, I really felt like it was the right thing to do for our clients that were going through that process. And I felt like... You know, it was a little overwhelming, you know, finding a school that would do a Canadian um, deployment. There's limited schools in Canada. There's tons in the U.S. Um, did we want a dog from the U.S.? And what would that mean in the era of Trump? And, you know, would they say that I'm taking away, would, would border services say I'm taking away the job? No, the job of, I'm taking away a, a dog who could get a job in Canada, you know, yeah, like that type of thing. Yeah. Can I take, can I take an American dog and do we want to go through that route? And what does that mean to get help with that school later when it's across the border? And so it was just a lot. And I found that starting that process was a bit overwhelming. And I would say that I felt like getting Marielle was more challenging in terms of ap- the application process. Once what, I mean, once we found the school, it was better, but as we were trying to sort this out and get into the groove of it, it felt like it was harder than going to graduate school, like getting in. It mm-hmm. felt more competitive. It felt wow. the wait list is very long sometimes. And um, for us, it was what can we do? And then what type of dog do we want? There's certain breeds that, that do this type of work. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it breaks my heart to say it. But I hated poodles. Like, I had no desire. Affinity for a poodle? No, I thought of the ugly dog shows with the really bad haircuts. <laughs> and I just... Poo-poo. And I remember saying to the Lions Foundation of Dog Guys, where she's from, I said, I do not want a poodle. Like, do not... I know, it breaks my heart now that Don't I see her. But I just... I, yeah, I just didn't want a poodle. And in the end, the school kind of made me see... She was exactly what on, we needed. On paper. But I didn't know we needed her in that way. So the fact that she has human hair and she's hyperallergenic, it allows us to use her in court a lot more. Because Absolutely. in the country, you're having defense attorneys that are kind of sometimes fibbing and saying that their client is allergic to dogs right. because they don't want the recall to be better with the, the victim, right? So they don't necessarily want us to use her as a testimonial aid. So then they called me one day and they said, after we went through the whole process, right, and they said, you know, your, your dog is ready, but we got something we got to tell you, you're getting a poodle. And I remember hanging up and I cried. And I remember thinking, and it seems so silly now, but I remember thinking, great, this is going to be the first dog in New Brunswick, a lot of pressure, and we're going to have this froofy poodle that no one's going to want to respect. Take Isn't that seriously? silly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, because I, I, I had visited, you know, other programs and other courthouse dogs, and there's an international conference where you go and, and, and you get to meet close to, you know, 250, 300 dog handlers. There's over 250 some in the U.S. We're now at 48, mm-hmm. 49 in, in Canada. Okay. Uh, the France has adopted the program as well. And so I just was devastated. Like, it sounds so silly now. And and it's like, I talk to Chantal, my secondary handler, about this all the time, and I'm like, 
can you imagine if we wouldn't have gotten Marielle? Like, I don't picture it without her. No. And, like, she's so right for so many reasons. Yeah. And then uh, when we when we did our deployment training and you, and you go to boot camp, um, one of the coolest experiences of my career was going to get our training for her because you get to meet a lot of other people who are also getting dogs for other work purposes. So it really... You get an appreciation of what people go through that you never had to think of because you're not in that position. Mm-hmm. So that was a really, a really big eye opener for me, like not just as a professional, but as a person. Mm-hmm. And I feel like no matter how old I am or what I do in life, I'm always going to remember going to boot camp training and going to dog university and, and meeting her for the first time and all the things we had to do together. But also that interaction with other people mm-hmm. and learning about their, their disabilities and and what having a dog was going to do for their lives, the, right. that independence that they've never felt before. Right. So, and then we met her, like the the guy who's in charge of the program, Ian. Even during graduation, he made this comment, and he goes, "Crystal loves her so much that she's going to go home and get a perm." Like they were making because <laughs> they knew that how badly I didn't want a poodle. And now, like, I mean, we'll see when she retires, and it's time. It's time for our successor dog. Will we wait longer for a poodle, or will we? Like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen because yeah. the the this, the program people that come down they get to know you intimately both on a on a personal level, a home yeah. level, and a work level, yeah. and they're the ones that are going to tell you how would I know what the best dog is for us for our job. That's their world, yes. right? Yeah. And you have to respect what that is. And boy, am I ever glad we did, mm-hmm. right? Because now, mm-hmm. yeah. So she's been busy. She's been. Working since the end of May um, at the Moncton Law Courts, helping people, not just, you know, testimonial, like as they go in the box, but also a lot of court prep, court waiting. The waiting is worse than even testifying is what it feels like for the for the client. Mm-hmm. Just that calming companionship, you know, that mm-hmm. wasn't there before. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's really cool. The, the bad side of it is that it isn't really my responsibility, but I do feel responsible um, for trying to keep control of how program rollout is going to look like across the province because it's really hard to hear of other handlers in other provinces that have lost their ability to, to deploy their dogs because of illegal dogs that have been allowed into the courtroom. Um, pet therapy dogs who pet therapy dogs are, are great. They're great for different things, but not in the courtroom. Not in the courtroom. They're really good for, um, you know, going to long-term care facilities, going right. to hospitals. Um, but they can work at about an hour a day really well. Uh, Mariel works 29 hours a week. And we know that when people take the witness stand, they could be there for hours, yeah. plus all the court waiting and stuff. So you can't do that emotionally to a dog who's a therapy dog versus a service dog. And if you don't get that education and if you're not in our world, how would the public know that? You know how many times a day I'm correcting people like, oh, that's the therapy dog. And I'm trying to find a nice way to say it. And I'm like, actually, she's a facility dog. And this is a 30-second, you know, elevator pitch on why, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's hard because animals are such an emotional attachment to people. So you can really upset people, you know. So I I find it a little overwhelming. And um, it's hard because I I can't control (laughs) what other cities are going to do in New Brunswick. All I can do is educate and, you know, make sure judges are aware because they're the ones at the end of the day allowing other dogs into the courtroom. Like, it's caused disastrous consequences in other provinces. It's caused mistrials. Mm -hmm. It's caused legitimate working dogs to be jobless because now something happened in court and they're going to review all their policies. So it's, um, it's a really scary thing. So it's, like, exciting that she's being used. 
it's just I feel like I never really know what's going to happen in other communities and are they going to understand why it's so important to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Like, what field can you think of where someone's going to water it down and say, this person can do this instead? We don't, you know, a cardiologist is a cardiologist. We're not saying somebody who took intro to bio should be a cardiologist. But in the field of working dogs, there's a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a shame because it's it's hurting the client and hurting some dogs who aren't tested to deal with the stress of everyday work life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know why that disrespect is there and that lack mm-hmm. of education, but I'm going to do what I it's can new. in my community. It's yeah, new. it's new. It's and, new. And I think that I hope with time, you know, that there's an, a better understanding and that people don't kind of go crazy and have a bunch of dogs doing things they shouldn't be doing. Hmm. Um, I think if pe- people understood it was to the detriment of the dog... I think that would probably speak more mm-hmm. to preventing the wrong dogs going in the courtroom. Yeah. Because people generally don't want to harm the animal, yeah. even when they're passionate about what they think should work. Absolutely. Um, so I think if there's an angle, that may be your angle. Mm-hmm. Is uh, that it's just it's not best for that dog to be doing that job. Yeah, and we, like, and we always say, you know, we'll, mm. they go low, we'll go high and do our best to, to educate and hope that the right decisions are made at the right time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't control the entire province and, and what happens, but boy, do we have 48 Canadian handlers that we formed a, a Canadian network, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of power there mm-hmm. and a lot of um, things that can be you know, sent to judges and written and explained to say this is the difference, you know. I feel like since she's been working here in Moncton anyways, they've developed that understanding for what the difference is between a therapy dog and Mariella as, an, as a justice facility dog. So, and it hasn't been a year. So right. I think if we just keep plugging away, yeah, um, I think that... Uh, Let them be your salespeople. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, Excellent. her work kind of speaks volumes, but... Like you got a couch in one day. I did. I did. It was the coolest thing for closed circuit TV. I, you know, as a charity, you you work a lot with other charities with with government agencies, and and sometimes you you just feel like you're kind of as a charity, you're doing a lot just on your own. It's a very lonely job, especially director. It's super lonely, um, and so I feel like with her program, everybody's come together. You know, whether it's a groomer providing free grooming. Or our Shadyac Lions Club, you know, paying for food or, you know, like just people are ready to answer the call, right? Mm-hmm. And so when they said like, oh, you need a couch for the closed circuit TV room and then within 24 hours there was one there and and we just came from there and we were using the couch today and I thought, what a big difference, like, that that person's made when they offered that without probably realizing what a difference it does make day to day with with victims, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a... It's a really cool thing. She's a really weird celebrity. Like, it's very... I don't know. (laughs) She's a door opener. She is. She is. (laughs) She's a... Yeah, it's just cool. And and, and a lot of times it's opened up people to want to disclose. Absolutely. They'll see her and, and, you know, oh, you know, she's that courthouse dog. And, oh, did you know that when I was a child, this happened to me? So it's kind of spinoffs of things that, like, when we created the program, it wouldn't say that... I said, oh, I'm going to absolutely do this for this reason. Mm-hmm. But it's all this lovely, like, 
side benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. sometimes that's how intuition works, right? Absolutely. Given, given the breadcrumb and then the dominoes fall. <laughs> yeah. And what's funny is I would say, it's funny. I would say that I have really good intuition. Mm-hmm. My husband would tell you that I think, I think I have really good intuition, but it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. He would actually say like, oh, would you stop it? Like if it's used in a bad way. So to be paranoid about something or, you know, oh, I knew that was going to happen. You know what I mean? I set set myself up for that, but it hasn't been wrong a lot. So I kind of said to him like, really? Because, you know, I've said that and it happened and oh, you, would you stop that? He would say it's more of like worry wart syndrome than he would probably call it intuition. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's just labeled a bit different. Mm -hmm. I I feel like, I don't know if it's intuition. I feel like I've just developed this experience where time and time again, I've been shown in the universe that interactions that you have with everyday people, you never know when those are going to circle back to you in like a, a very concrete way that was unknown to you during that meet cute, during that introduction, during that. And I think that that's something that I've always been very like attuned to. Mm-hmm. And, and the more that these relationships and in, interactions circle back, the more that my gut tells me when I meet somebody, I'm already making links in my head as to how this person can be of service to community, be of service to me or what I can give to them, right? Like mm-hmm. you see somebody and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that person would probably be a really good spokesperson to talk, you know, at an annual general meeting or to talk at our run for women or, you know, and maybe I met them three, four years ago on something completely separate. Maybe we were both complaining that the avocado had gone bad in aisle two, right? But we just connected and then, oh, you're that lady that handles Muriel. Like, oh, did you know? And then it's, I find that stuff really interesting. I feel like my gut has always told me not to waste interactions. Like it's really been bang on for me and has helped me serve the community. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes total sense. Yeah, it's a weird, it's just a weird thing where later on, like you said, like you and I have known each other forever. And when you meet somebody, you're like, oh, this person has these qualities or they have this education and background and they have this to offer. Mm-hmm. And in what way can I partner with them or link with them either now or four or five years from now? And and that they might become a really important person to me mm-hmm. later. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Building the Rolodex. Yeah. But not in like a stiffy corporate way. No. Just in a like, I really like this person's view on whatever. Or this person has a really open spirit. Or this person would be a great asset for this reason. And then you just kind of, it's not that you forget. It's like they kind of float away on a cloud in your brain somewhere. And then something happens in life. And you make a link between that issue or that need with that person on that cloud that you kind of put aside or put on the shelf. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. This person would be great at being a guest speaker on trauma, mm. you know, or this person. And sometimes it's, it's people's backgrounds, you know. Like we, we have a lady that does an acupuncture clinic at our organization. And she would have been someone I would have met. It would have been a coworker, And they would have went for their own personal use, right? Mm-hmm. And then you'd run into them at the market. And, oh, yeah, those are those people. And, my God, they're very giving and... And they said they want to do reduce rates for people who need it in their community. And, and then, you know, all of a sudden it's turned into this, you know, for years now, this once a month drop in acupuncture clinic for people 
that has done a lot of healing and a lot of good, right? Awesome. And then someone else will say, oh, well, you know, I'm a massage therapist and, and I'd like to give back because that's something I could do. So then you look at, well, we did the acupuncture with this person. I wonder if she wants to do that, you know, at the at the facility. So now we have, you know, chair massage every mm. two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. So you just... I don't know. I think if you're you have an open spirit and you're not closed off when you meet people and you don't make assumptions as to their limitations of what they could offer to the people around them, it's kind of like you have an unlimited potential with people and they just surprise you anyways. And later you're like, I had no idea you were good at whatever, but I was open to learning about that and that's how I found out about it. So, I guess that's kind of what I I don't think I've ever viewed that as intuition, but I think it really is. I just, <laughs> I just have viewed it as maybe being like strategic about conversations, but I think it is very much a gut. It is. It's a gut vibe that I, that I tend to connect with people like that. Absolutely. And you've been doing it your whole life. Yeah. I don't really think I've ever, like my husband jokes about that. Like he's like, you're really good at that business after five stuff. And he doesn't like to do that stuff. It's just not natural to him. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's because I just, I don't know, like to get to know people and what they're up to and and knowing that they might have something that, you know, can help our agency or help me through something personally or help me reframe the way I look at something or, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But I never really thought about it as intuition. But now that I say it out loud, it really is. Because <laughs> when you're talking, I'm like, I don't really know what to say about intuition. But apparently that's what I have to say about it. Apparently that <laughs> apparently is. Apparently I, I do do that. I do. Yes, and sure. and I would make the leap that to be in your job, as long as you've been, your spidey senses have to be pretty darn good. Yeah, and I think that can be good and bad. Like, I think that uh, the charitable sector is a really difficult one. It is a very competitive one. Um, it's not something that people like to talk about publicly. People like are scared that we're going to scare prospective donors or government partners. And, 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 and there's this, this cloak of, oh, well, let's just look like we're all holding hands and singing Kumbaya and, and raising money for the poor stuff. Right. And I think in reality, the, the charitable sector, you know, isn't given its due respect. And because of that, you have people that run charities or work in charities jump into that pool of disrespect right? Well, I'm going to fit this mold because this is what we've always been viewed as, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not going to ask for that raise or I'm not going to demand an increase in that grant because something's better than nothing. But that came from that feeling of, well, charities are are there. They're not going anywhere. It, it's a really misunderstood sector. And I was listening to a TED Talk the other day that talked about how, you know, when it looks at charities and what they employ, like they employ and make more money, than like fuel and right. oil. Like right. that's pretty amazing, right? right? But we're never allowed to take a sick day. Like forget, what do you mean you're sick? What do you mean you're not at the office today? Mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily get that from like other fields. So mm. I sometimes wish I was like in my early 20s again just starting because I was more naive and happier about how things are in the charitable sector. So there's a lot of things that I wish i didn't know I guess Mm -hmm. or that I or I've had to adapt to and a lot of it is just the competitive world whereas if we were I really feel and as sad as it sounds things are the way that they are and there's so much work to do so what are you fighting over like Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Stop. you should be working yourself out of a job. Yes. Right? Like Stop at some point. I should, bickering. Yeah. And just start, do it together. Start focusing on the task. Yeah. Find your, find where, find where you sit comfortably. Find where your home is. Like where that field is for you and then head that way. But you just have a lot of agencies that um, mission drift because they are crying and scared about the money and they don't want to have to lay off and people mm. are going to their agencies um, and mission drifting causes competition in agencies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard. It's it's really hard. Like some of the most intense days of harassment and bullying I've ever gone through is when I entered the charitable sector. I wouldn't say I was somebody who was picked on in school. I was one of those middle of the road kids. You mind your own business. You're smart. But, you know, I was never, I, know, I couldn't say to you that I was a child of bullying. I right. wasn't. Right. Um, but I did go through some of that early on when I started working in the sector. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was hard to figure out why it was happening why? and how to respond to it. Um, I remember my husband saying to me at some point, you either need to find a way to let it go and cope with it, or you're going to have to get out of the sector because it's going to kill you. Like mm-hmm. how, how many years can you maintain that, that type of, of intimidation and power? So I think that, I think that if the sector was given more respect for the fact that if every charity shut down right now, even in Moncton or even in New Brunswick, that's when you'd see the real cost of not having the charity exist, right? Right. And we've talked about that as charities. We've gotten together and kind of had this, I wonder what would happen if right. one day we all you shut all down. Stroke. You yeah. went on strike. We all went on strike. What, what, what would happen? Yeah. Um, and we don't because it our answer has always been, well, it's the client that's it's suffering, client that's right? Suffers, so then, yeah. so then you don't, Absolutely. but I think that there's, I don't know. There's a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done there. I don't know if that's like, I don't know, my next life or my, I, I don't know. I think that there, there, there needs to be a voice there. There needs to be somebody speaking to the, the true value of the sector and, and change how that dialogue is mm-hmm. because that this, the charitable sector is going to be needed you know, even in language, if you look at the word nonprofit, right? <laughs> um, people equate a nonprofit organization with people that will do stuff for next to nothing or for free or people that should take socks with holes in them because that's good enough for people that are poor, right? So it's, um, it's hard, you know, it's hard when donors bring garbage to your organization, which you now have to pay for because your garbage is weight. And I'm like, this is costing me to take in your garbage. Like, but you don't want to anger the donor. So you're kind of, ah, thank you for these things, right? And then you're spending your day trying to figure out what to do with it, right? Like, I think that that's, and that has to do with a misunderstanding of what people in poverty deserve. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If they understood what people deserve, they wouldn't be giving me garbage or socks with holes in them. And who's responsible for that misunderstanding? It's a societal responsibility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think we all have a responsibility to have that conversation about the real value of the of the charitable sector, for sure. Well, and the real value of human to human interaction, and the fact that we really are all the same. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there's like, still there's a disconnect of disconnect of, uh, and that's part of the reason for this podcast is to get people connected to their intuition. Because if they just followed their intuition, they would never treat other human beings. No. The way things get treated. People get treated. I think having her too has. I applied for the program to want to do that, you know, to to change the way we do court support in the province and see if we can, you know, grow this a bit and have you know other dogs because she can't do everything. But I did not for a second realize at how much it was going to help me a little bit with my work life balance. 
Um, it's taken me back. Yeah. 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 It's taken me back, like, both, like, in a work capacity, because, like, Mm -hmm. it takes me back to my roots of working with clients. And so when you spend more time with with your people and your why, Mm -hmm. your frame of mind is a lot different when you're trudging through a grant application or working on a budget and doing the less fun things of your job. You have a renewed passion for it. Correct. Because of the fact that it... Reminds you yeah. why of your yeah. why. And then on a personal level, because in order for her to perform, she needs to have adequate exercise and burn off. It has forced me to be outside more and going be to dog parks. Yeah, fresh air or spending a night even doing training with her. Because mm-hmm. when I'm doing those things, I can't have my brain stressing out about something with the agency. Right? Like it, mm-hmm. it's, So it's, I don't know, it's helped me give a focus to that. And it's it's helped me develop a love, I guess, of like, dog training in a way or just the power of what like I think I think in you know fast forward maybe I don't know 40 50 years I think we're just like scraping the surface of what dogs are going to be doing for jobs right like you know I just think we that they're just such intelligent don't we yeah they're just such in intelligent Ariel? breeds yes we know these things. I think yeah I think they're going to be able I to I think we've found who's taking over the courtroom foundation <laughs> uh, I don't know about that one People ask me that a lot, what I'm going to be doing later. I don't know. I just... Just do the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> just I, do the next I thing. I just like what I'm doing, and yeah. I love our agency. I love the crisis center. My staff is like a family to me. Like, I just... I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just content, you know? Well, content. <laughs> I am uh, consumed, of course, with whatever's going on and yeah. high stress most days. But I don't know. There's parts of it that I wouldn't trade even though the other stuff is really ugly and difficult. <laughs> it's still, like, maybe a cost-benefit, and I think I think I'm still on the winning end of getting to help people every day. Like, lovely. It's cool. Like, it's, I don't know. You're fulfilled. You're, you know, you feel Having like impact. you get to, Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, impact, interacting, you know, making, making a difference. And, yeah, being innovative in programming, I think, helps, too. Mm-hmm. I think outside the box and... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank She's you. a pretty special girl, though. Right, Miss Miriam? Yeah. Good girl. Good girl. Sit. I think you found your right fit. Poodle and all. I know. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get a perm. <laughs> First of all, my hair is too short now. I actually cut my hair this short because her hair is too high maintenance. And I don't have the time to, like, take care of hers and mine. <laughs> so I just cut mine really short so I wouldn't have to deal with because <laughs> hers gets so thick. And Who has the power, right? I know. Now? Yeah, you're high maintenance, but we still love you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much for today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. We truly appreciate our guests for sharing their stories and insights about how intuition has impacted their lives. And I'm so grateful for Peter Trainer for his time in giving me this original music. It's now your turn. It's your turn to listen and act on your own intuition and help make the world a better place. Until next time, keep seeing, being, knowing, and doing. If you like this podcast, please share it. If you want to find others like it, Go to www.healingvitality.ca or wherever you would find your podcasts. We would love to have you join us on this journey. Come be a crow sitting in the tree. 
be part of our community. <laughs>